All right, we're back at Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Edwin de Jesus, who's one of the co-managers of the Cornell West campaign, and he's the director of Ballot Access. Edwin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. So before we jump into talking about uh, Dr. West's campaign, I want to know a little bit more about your background. So you've been involved a lot in social media, local politics. You ran for city council a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, tell us what, so again, tell us a little bit about your background and why you're doing the kind of work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I lived in Astoria, Queens my whole life. I saw a lot of damage to my neighborhood in terms of gentrification and economic despair around the time of the pandemic. You know, I had recently graduated on a scholarship from Columbia University. Uh, shortly thereafter, I was working in the film industry as a production assistant. That's what I've studied my entire life. It's always been my creative uh, and technical passion. Uh, but one day I went to a Bernie Sanders rally in Queensbridge where I met with one of his national advance staffers, got into a conversation with them and was actually able to have an interview uh, with the head of national advance on the Bernie campaign. This was in 2019. And I landed that job working across the country uh, for Senator Sanders, uh, helping to organize rallies and town halls um, and working with surrogates such as Dr. Cornell West himself. Um, and that came to a halt in March of 2020 uh, when they began the lockdowns. And after Bernie uh, endorsed Joe Biden and kind of threw, I, I would say through his movement under the bus after that, I felt like it was up to a lot of us in the movement at a local level to kind of carry the torch and bring about you know, material change for the working class in our own communities. So I decided when there was an open seat for City Council District 22 in my hometown, Astoria, that I wanted to run for City Council, but I didn't want to do it as either a Democrat or a Republican. I wanted to run as an independent or a third-party candidate. But in that year, Governor Cuomo had kicked off multiple third parties off the ballot, and the only remaining ones uh, were, you know, Working Families, which is an extension of the Democrats, and then the Conservative Party, which is an extension of the Republicans. So what I did was a, almost like a little hack. I, I ran as an independent, but in New York, you have something called a party designating name, which is basically just like the title on top of your ballot. And the title that I chose was Green. So when people signed the petition to get me on the ballot, it said Green Party, even though they don't have official party ballot status. So you know, I received the endorsement of the Greens in New York and also nationally um, in, a, in an attempt to revive third party ballot status. So uh, that was my goal. You know, I didn't win, but I got nearly 6% of the vote over 1,200 voters, which is a lot in a very, very solid blue district. Um, you know, and there, there are some metrics like in East Elmhurst, I out fundraised the Democratic candidate. Um, and, you know, they were backed by the whole DSA machine, Working Families Party machine. Um, so, you know, I, I think that this was something that was a success in my eyes in terms of giving people another choice so that they don't have to constantly always vote for, you know, one or the other of the two major parties and give them an alternative so that they can, you know, voice, you know, their opinions and say, we're tired of this of this system where, each party is just kind of playing within the 40 yard line and there's really not much of a difference other than maybe some cultural issues. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and before we get to the, your case for uh, voting for third parties, I want to talk about the value of local politics because it seems like you know when you turn on the news, all you hear is people talking about things on the national or even the international level. Like local politics gets subsumed into this uh, or gets lost in the bigger picture. Um, what cost do you think that ends up having on the bigger scheme of things that people, a lot of people, don't even know who their city council person, who their or their local elected officials are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially in New York, the city council has a lot of power in terms of what your neighborhood actually looks like. The biggest thing that besides the budget itself, which is a massive thing, um, but one of the biggest things for me was uh, land use and rezoning, which the city council directly oversees. They typically have a process where if one, if the council member who represents their district is opposed to say like a big real estate development in the neighborhood, for example, Innovation Queens, which was a big thing here in Astoria near the Steinway Street area. Yeah. Typically that would be, there would be deference given to that council member. And so if they were opposed, the rest of the council would respect that. Uh, that is not really the case so much anymore. We're kind of living in a system where even though the people voted for their representative and their representative can say, you know, we don't want this in our neighborhood, the rest of the city council can just override that. And people and representatives from other districts can have a bigger say in your community than than you do. And that's very unjust. Um, but, you know, even the person that I was running against, I mean, made promises about, you know, stopping certain rezoning projects, and then immediately after assuming office, flip flopped, and then started approving them. So, you know, that's that's the reality of the situation is that the people who kind of claim to be um, on a local level, you know, oh, well, I'm in the Democratic Party, but I'm really fighting it from the inside. It's never the case. It's you always 100% of the time will become co-opted that way. Uh, whether you from the beginning sought to be different or not, or not yeah. AOC is a prime example of someone on a federal level, but then it happens on the local level as well. Um, so, you know, local politics... I think is where you can really make a change that affects your own family. Whereas, you know, national politics that now you're talking about foreign policy and all these other things that are very important. But when it comes to like, you know, your own neighborhood and the ability to just freely, you know, be safe in your own neighborhood and, you know, have access to a parking spot. If you don't have a, a private parking spot and, you know, you have a baby, for example, and you want it to be easy to take your baby in and out the house, uh, a local uh, city council person might say, hey, I think this is a perfect place to uh, put a city bike docking station right in the middle yeah. of the street and take up all the parking. And that affects your quality of life. I mean, it seems like a, a trivial thing, but on a daily basis, if you are, you know, constantly idling, waiting for a parking spot after work, after a long day of work, and you can't even... Uh, you know, find a, a spot so you could get home and cook dinner, then that has a bigger impact on you than perhaps what's going on in the Middle East. Yeah, no, and I think also there's a, an important cultural dimension to this, the, the issue of people not really being engaged in their local politics. I think it's a reflection of this lack of neighborliness, the lack of of this sense that it's important and worthwhile to sink your roots into a particular neighborhood, a particular area. I mean, the fact that a lot of people don't even know their neighbors, um, again, is, is a sign of this this kind of general uprootedness. So I'm kind of curious for you, like living in a story that's a very particular uh, part of Queens, what do you see? Like, do you see a sense of people being 
rooted in the neighborhood, being connected with their neighbors? Do you feel like people are kind of aloof and apathetic? What, what would you say? I would say that, you know, Astoria, which is, you know, the most diverse neighborhood, not just in New York, but in the country, um, has be the culture has become increasingly homogenized. Mm -hmm. And where you used to have like a whole different range of people interacting and, and you know, feeling like an actual community, I do believe that over the past few years, it has devolved in, into a situation where like, you know, you get on the end train um, and you see like, you know, there's a, a pregnant woman looking for a seat and people don't even want to give it up, you know, and it's it's sad because, you know, I mean, this could be in other communities as well, but I could I could just speak to here that ever since uh, the pandemic, there's been this notion that like, you know, people uh, pose a threat to me if they're, you know, too close to me or if they didn't get vaccinated or they're not wearing their mask and you, that means you're sick. So get away from me. And I think that had a really big impact on the psychology of of people, especially young people growing up, yeah. not being able to just see the faces of people in their community. And, and that, you know, really other otherizes your own neighbors. And I do believe that leads to a sense of apathy and a sense of uh, you know, a, a lack of a sense of community. And, and, and that in itself, I think is a primary driver of, 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 you know, mental illnesses, mm -hmm. increases in crime, you know, the, the filthiness of your neighborhood. If you don't care about your community, you're just gonna, you know, litter and, uh, be, you know, not pick up after yourself. So it, I do think that, uh, on a deep level, there has been a spiritual shift mm -hmm. where, you know, people just don't trust each other as much. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with what you're saying, this like homogenization of the neighborhood, because I I mean, I've had connections to Astoria since I was young, because I mean, it's pretty much the biggest Greek community in the United States. And my family would always go to the restaurants, to visit family, to the churches, to the stores, everything. And I mean, the Greeks still do have a strong presence there among other ethnic communities, but you definitely see it um, dwindling. Um, for example, like one of the major Greek supermarkets closed down. And that's, to me, that's a tragedy because like now there's no main like big place. But more importantly, it represents this, again, like this lack of um, cultural, I don't know, like these these various ethnic groups are kind of losing their hold, their presence. And again, I, I'm seeing these young people who are moving in because the rent is not so bad compared to other parts of the city but are not invested in the neighborhood the same way that these different ethnic groups are who's had family members there for years um and that's like the side of gentrification that i don't think gets talked about enough that it's not just it's not just like a, a political or economic issue it's a cultural issue it's like if you're going to come into a neighborhood without any investment in sinking your roots being part of the community getting to know people intending to stay for a while like that is much more destructive. I don't know. I mean, again, it's like, I think that gets lost in the discourse, but has a huge impact, you know? Um, and again, it's not just the Greeks. There are plenty of other ethnic communities that are experiencing similar things in Astoria. But, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think it's actually, it's more problematic when someone comes to a neighborhood and then runs for office almost immediately and then mm -hmm. tries to dictate the policy of that neighborhood, even more so than just, you know, people moving in. You have people who uh, claim to represent an area, but don't even know um, you know, the names like, for example, the per, uh, my opponent called Ditmar's Boulevard, Ditmar's Avenue. And to me, that's just like insulting because that's like the main street and you don't even know the name off the top of your head. It's like you have to look it up and then you're saying, well, this is the best policy for all the people in this community. 
I think that's where we have to draw the line. And I mean, you can look around Astoria. It, it just does not look the same as it did even five years ago, where Mike's Diner used to be is now, a, what, a TJ Maxx or a, a Target, rather. No, now there's a TJ Maxx across the street. Um, and uh, what's that other a big chain? There's an IHOP there that I don't even see anyone even go into that IHOP. There's a, a Burlington. And that, I mean, that has a big effect on the local uh, business, small businesses who struggled the most during the pandemic and were basically punished for just being open and selling their services and their products and had to pay fines for trivial things. Uh, and then when a big retail giant just comes into the middle of the neighborhood and, you know, Astoria has always had very low uh, buildings, like low story buildings, all of a sudden that you can't even see the sky anymore, which was something that was really unique to Astoria. But yeah, I mean, all of the all of the the money from the local economy is getting poured into these large corporations that you know they they're just they're not bringing it back into the community, right? I mean, they're yeah. they're investing it in you know the 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 boards have their offshore accounts somewhere in the Cayman Islands or whatever. It's not coming back into you know your local bodega, and that I think I I made a prediction back then. I mean, this was kind of at the onset of of this inflationary crisis, but I. I made a prediction that the price of a bacon, egg, and cheese was going to skyrocket, and my campaign slogan literally was "Keep bacon, bacon, egg, and cheese at three dollars and fifty cents a roll," mm -hmm. because yeah. you know, as a basket item, I mean, that's kind of what you'd expect for a cheap breakfast. Now it's a standard of like five dollars, which is something that you used to see maybe in Williamsburg, but it very quickly trickled its way up to Astoria. And that in in itself, I think, is not only is it culturally damaging and economically damaging, but um, it just makes you want to, you know, it just makes you question whether or not you even want to do something like have a child, which I ended up doing myself. But, you know, it's something that you have to be more calculated about because you're not even sure if you're going to be able to afford certain things. Uh, because if you can't even afford a breakfast sandwich, you know, how are you going to afford to raise a child? And and it's hard. You have to really budget and be much more conscious about your spending habits. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, a small thing, but it's really not because I mean, where I am in Brooklyn, um, when I'm working remotely, I prefer to be in a public space, like a cafe than working in my bedroom. But the reality is to get like a coffee and a snack, it's like over $10 which makes it really discouraging, you know? So like, it's it's a bigger issue than we think. Um, but no, but back to Astoria, um, one place that shut down after the pandemic that makes me very upset, there was the restaurant and also doubled as a nightclub, Don Coqui, the Puerto Rican place um, that apparently got robbed during the pandemic and then they shut down. And like, this was one of the greatest places because they charged no cover, like the great music, great food. Like, that's a shame to me, that a place like that, that has, you know, just like such a brought such a like lively presence in the neighborhood like i don't know so and then you're bringing in these big chain corporations sure like it brings in tax revenue for the city but what does it do the community you know it's it's disappointing but but no i do want to move on though to the question about third parties because you know plenty of people argue okay it's a wasted vote what do you say to those people i mean your vote is is your voice Right. So it completely belongs to you. A lot of a lot of the time now you see politicians kind of shaming people for the way that they want to vote. You yeah. know, they say, don't vote your conscience. You have to vote strategically, because if you don't vote the way we tell you to, then democracy is going to die, which is obviously you know ironic because 
the whole point of democracy is to freely, you know, give your 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 freedom of speech and um, your your free freedom of thought without censorship. But now we're in a place where it feels like, and a lot of this has to do with the messaging that comes from the mainstream media, that you're doing something wrong if you uh, vote a certain way. I mean, just look at what happened in Michigan, 100,000 people voting uncommitted uh, in the Democratic primary uh, and people trying to shame that and say, well, you know, if we don't all get behind Joe Biden, then that means you're going to elect Donald Trump and we're going to lose yeah. democracy. So we basically have to, you know, kick third parties off the ballot and uh, ensure that, you know, the system is set up in a way where we get, you know, and politicians nowadays, they're not even trying to earn your vote. They're just trying to intimidate you using fear tactics. Um, the whole point is, what are you going to offer me in exchange for my vote? That's the way it should be. Yeah. Um, but since the two major parties are not offering that, it should be, you know, something that for people to consider, like, hey, if I vote third party, like, this candidate's probably not going to win. So what's the point? Well, there's a lot of uh, reasons you should vote third party, even if your candidate's not going to win. For example, uh, if your third party candidate gets over 5% of the popular vote, they qualify for FEC uh, federal, federal matching funds in the next election, which means that four years after that, uh, anyone who runs in that party is going to, in that third party, is going to have millions of extra dollars that they didn't have before, which significantly increases the chances of them uh, being more successful uh, because they can pay now to actually put out advertising and spread their message. And people will say, particularly about independents like Dr. West, well, since he's not running under an actual, um, you know, an established party like the Greens anymore, doesn't that mean that after this election, all of his efforts in terms of ballot access are just going to fade away and it's going to mean nothing? And I could understand how you might think that because there really is no source of information on this. But the truth is, actually, there is a lasting legacy um, in multiple ways. Uh, first of all, uh, by running in a state like New York, right, as an independent, uh, and on, and as I mentioned before, there's that uh, political party designating name, which is kind of just like a symbolic title on top on top of the petition. By running uh, as the justice for all independent candidate in New York State, all Dr. West needs to do is garner two percent of the vote, and then justice for all can actually, um, you know, once there's like a board set up and all that, they will have ballot access in future elections, and that means local candidates, state level, um, you know, city level, will be able to run under that party in future elections and already have ballot access so that they don't have to collect this obscene amount of signatures, which, you know, as you may know, for independence is much more than what the Democrats and Republicans have to do. It's mm -hmm. it's usually an astronomical number for for president. It's forty five thousand, um, you know, and for city council, again, you're collecting more than triple the amount that the that the two parties, the two corporate parties usually uh, would have to collect. So that in alone in itself, I think, will significantly help local communities if it means that it's easier for them to run a candidate who's not beholden to corporate interests and are running grassroots campaigns from working class donors who can only afford to chip in a couple bucks. That's huge. Another thing is that uh, those uh, once you have uh, like a party like that set up, right, Just, justice for all, um, that's, you know, the, the party that, that we're establishing, you can have a state account where you are allowed to fundraise for that party and use that money for mutual aid. So you can actually 
uh, put money directly back into the hands of your community uh, using uh, this like state level party as a fundraising mechanism. Um, so, you know, those are just two reasons alone that if you're voting third party, you are you can significantly help your community in a way that you you know most people don't understand. That and I think that's going to be you know going forward. That's really our main mission is to kind of just educate voters on on that and on the benefits. So yeah, I mean beyond just beyond just being free and choosing the candidate that best aligns with your beliefs, um, you know it's it's important to vote for your own self interest. I think, and the idea of a spoiler is just a myth because really you know. It, it, more likely than not, a candidate like Dr. West, he's running on a on a platform on a populist platform, with policies that appeal to the majority of Americans. You know, a policy like Medicare for all, even the majority of Republicans support it, not just Democrats. Yeah. And yet, neither of the two major parties actually put it on their platform. In fact, you know, the the Democrats promised to veto it if it came across you know the Biden administration's desk. So, who's the real spoiler if you are actually fighting for what people want? It sounds to me like Joe Biden is the spoiler because nobody wants him to mm -hmm. be president anymore because he's not capable of being president. And even if he was, his policies stink. Yeah, um, but I, I'm wondering though, for you, is working on this pain like is your this campaign is your goal to to win or just to like I don't know to change the narrative of the mainstream? Our goal is definitely to win. And we understand that it's an uphill battle. You know, we're not delusional in that sense. It's a long shot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to keep in the back of our minds that if we don't win, what is going to be the legacy left forward after this? And so that kind of long-term movement thinking is definitely part of the process and part of our strategy. But ultimately, the most important goal and the one that, you know, we precedes everything and is on the top of our, of our, you know, our goal here is to actually win the election and put Dr. West... In, in the White House, because at the end of the day, you know, no candidate is perfect. But when you look at the choices we have now, it's either, you know, you're, you're, you're basically voting for genocide, you're voting for more division, you're voting for the greed of Wall Street, the greed of the fossil fuel industry, the big pharmaceutical companies, uh, the private healthcare industry, health insurance industry, um, you know, why why continue to give those people the power to maintain the status quo? Uh, you know, they're they're sure it's more likely that one of those the two major parties can win because they have this infrastructure and super PACs and all of these millions and millions of dollars that are being thrown at them. But sometimes money can't really buy everything. Sometimes just and I know this sounds kind of corny, but the will of the people and the power of the people coming together in a grassroots movement, you know, of all classes and all identities, that can sometimes be stronger than even millions of dollars. But the challenge there is actually getting people to come together. Uh, most people feel divided because the TV tells them that your neighbor is your enemy. Um, they don't actually inform them that, no, the person who's screwing you over is the military industrial complex. It's not your neighbor. Uh, so, you know, part of it is really kind of waking people up to, you know, like, well, so how do we fix this like broken campaign finance system? Oh, we need to start by overturning Citizens United. We need term limits and stuff like that. Um, you know, if we can get ourselves in a place where 
the people can unite behind a movement candidate. And then what we do is we move the, the needle in terms of um, the public conversation. So right now, certain ideas like, or even, you know, let's say before Bernie, who again, I don't support anymore because of his his unwillingness to uh, buck the Democratic Party on issues as big as genocide. But before him, you know, people didn't even think Medicare for all would be a possibility. They thought, well, we just have to continue this sick care system where people are abused by uh, the, 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 the medical industry and their debt means that they're going to go bankrupt. And it's the number one reason Americans go bankrupt is due to medical debt. People thought, well, this is just the way it has to be because this is America and it's never going to be different. But all it took was like, you know, one one campaign with a movement behind them to make people feel like actually if we fight hard enough we might actually get this and uh that's why there's now movements in in different states not just federally but you know in washington and new york to kind of pursue a similar thing and whether or not you believe the state avenue or the federal avenue is the best way strategically we can all argue that at least the overton window has been pushed in the direction of of power to the working class yeah. Um, and then for you, what what is what do you think is most compelling about Dr. West's campaign to the point that you decided to to jump on board and, and start working with him? Yeah, I mean, well, for one, he's not a politician, which is you know a primary reason people voted for Trump was because he wasn't a career politician. But the difference is that Dr. West has been consistent morally and ethically for decades, right? So you know the entire span of his career, his messaging has always been the same. His views on Palestine, you know, human rights for the people in Gaza has been something that he's been consistent on for many, many years. It's not something that he just started recently talking about. He's not someone that, you know, is just campaigning for president and then when it's over is going to disappear. That's, you know, that is in itself, I think, kind of the most important thing is like, no matter what, the man has the integrity to remain consistent. So even if there are things that we, you know, disagree on, uh, the most important thing is that you know what he thinks, he's going to freely say it. So even if you don't agree with it, you know, well, at least he's authentic and I know what he's thinking. And again, that's the same reason people voted for Trump is because they knew that he was on his own Twitter account and, you know, what you see is kind of what you get. And he's not really biting his tongue. And for a lot of people, that's a really important thing. So in a way that almost kind of makes him like the leftist version of Trump, which I see as being appealing to people regardless of their political ideologies. Um, but, you know, I think his policies are just greater than what's being offered now. Like I mentioned before, I think healthcare being a human right uh, is a really important one. You know, he's against the greed of the pharmaceutical companies, which I think is really important. As you know, the, the massive upward transfer of wealth that has been given to them over the past couple of years, the the Federal Reserve kind of screwing over the working person um, and his willingness to actually stand up to the powers that be. You know, you, it's really hard to find someone who I think is kind of right on the issue of disbanding NATO and uh, no longer funding this uh, war in Ukraine. And at the same time, also not interested in funding Israel. You might find one person, you know, uh, doing one, one or the other, uh, but to find someone who's consistent on both and being the peace candidate universally and not being, you know, hypocritical when it comes to like one foreign country or the other and saying, no, uh, we need to stop the funding uh, to all of these, uh, you know, to all of the, the military operations that the U.S. is supporting 
across the globe. I mean, that's powerful and they don't really allow a lot of people to say that on TV, but Dr. West does get to say it on TV because he he's had those relationships with the media for a long time. And so he actually has the ability to go on CNN um, and, and call, you know, um, the, the IDF terrorists, which is something that would just get you censored if you were anyone else. So I think in that way, it's not just that he's courageous, but because, uh, He's actually has a, a a megaphone that he that he can actually speak freely these ideas where um I think it's powerful. Um yeah. so yeah, uh you're just not gonna find that in definitely not gonna find it in Biden. And yes, Trump didn't start any new wars while he was in office. He did do he did do more drone strikes than Obama, I believe. But um, you know, can we make the argument that, you know, uh that that if Trump was president, Russia wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. Yes, but this whole idea about him being beholden to Israel is definitely a problem um, for Trump. Uh, you know, as you know, he he is very much not willing to buck. I think the Netanyahu government, in a way that Cornell West is definitely willing to call him a war criminal. Yeah, um, and so I I mentioned I, I might have mentioned to you uh, in the email. So I wrote a piece for Newsweek a couple months ago about um, how Doctor West has an interesting way of being very open to dialogue with all kinds of people, people who he like vehemently disagrees with, but because he has a deep respect for every human being, like will engage in a, in a reasonable dialogue. It won't censor his his ideas, you know, but again, like is willing to talk to anyone. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about Trump, because, I mean, obviously, Trump has uh, plenty of moral flaws. There are also certain things that, you know, we could say we could applaud him for that. In the least, he kind of shattered the like kind of, um, I don't know, the mainstream kind of neoliberal establishment, which is something that Dr. West has recognized. You know, like there was a New York Times piece where he said, you know, like the one good thing about Trump is that, again, he's like really changed the discourse. But do we want someone who is so morally compromised to be in such a position of power, um, especially someone whose whose main line of work is entertainment more than anything? You know, I, th I think he's, uh, he's an entertainer. He, he does a great job, but I don't know if uh, he's fit for politics. But um, no, I think. But anyway, what I was trying to argue in this Newsweek piece is that conservatives who were drawn to Trump um should be paying attention to the cornell west campaign whether they vote for him or not because he does have a lot of appeal to people who again have uh what some might label conservative values um in the least he's again like he has this closeness to the people to communities this this populist sensibility um but also he's he's a man of faith um and this is something that one of our, our contributors on the Substack, brennan he wrote about the fact that um, even if you disagree with Dr. West's politics, like the fact that he's not just parading his religiosity as like, it's not a performance. Like clearly since his youth, this is something that's played a huge role in his life and still does. And it's part of the reason why he's, he has his policies on human rights, but also that he's open to engaging with people he disagrees with. And I think people of, of faith, of whatever faith, of whatever political persuasion, again, should be paying attention to someone for whom religion is not just a performative thing, like it's some, an integral part of his life. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on the role religion plays in his platform and how how that might be appealing to someone who is committed to their faith, 
but who isn't really attracted to the mainstream Democratic or Republican platforms? Because again, like you have Biden, who's who's Catholic, you have Trump, who's, you know, kind of flirted with evangelicalism, but like no one seems really interested in in the role religion plays. So, so yeah, if you can comment a little bit on that. Yeah, well, I mean, Dr. West always says that, you know, his Christian witness is for him. Um, I mean, that that's what really drives him and his his values of looking at people as human beings, not as, you know, well, if you like you said, uh, he's willing to, you know, he he's even he's been longtime friends with Sean Hannity going on his show who they have deep disagreements and he acknowledges that. Uh, but at the same time, he's willing to call him his brother. And, you know, some people don't like when he calls like Trump his brother or even Biden his brother, but that consistency that regardless of who it of who it is, yeah. he's willing to still view people as people and see the humanity in them. And, you know, that's really unique. I mean, there's not really any camp political campaigns that I could ever think of that puts love at the forefront of it. And I think that's just really powerful, you know, and, you know, our campaign uh, slogan is truth, justice, and love. And that in itself is really unique. Um, like you said, Trump, he has deep moral disagreements with, but when the, you know, the powers that be and our judicial system is trying to kick Trump off the ballot and not even give voters that choice to express, Dr. West has been opposed to that. And, you know, has actually stood up and said, this is not right. Like, you know, let him be defeated at the ballot box. Let's not go against, you know, our own ways of democracy. Uh, because again, it's it's an oxymoron to say we have to save democracy by disabling it. Um, so yeah, I think in that way, there are a lot of conservatives who are drawn to him. Even recently, I saw a video of him at an airport where uh, he was on his, he was, uh, he was traveling and some guy wearing um, a MAGA hat on his way to CPAC stopped him and started talking with him and was super friendly. And when Dr. West walked away, he told his audience, and he has like hundreds of thousands of followers, he was saying, look, um, you know, vote for Trump. That's that's my candidate. But hey, if you're a leftist, vote for Dr. West, uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, uh, if if that's if that's kind of your belief system, he's the candidate for you. And I've just... I just, you just don't see that anywhere else. I mean, it's super rare. Most of the time people will tend to kind of commit to their own tribe, but to, but somehow Dr. West is able to kind of transcend the tribalism and get people of differing opinions to actually come together and at least talk it out in a civil way, um, in a compassionate way. Um, and to me, you know, regardless of what religion you are, I think we all kind of agree on, you know, being compassionate and uh you know to your neighbor and you know not trying to censor people for their beliefs um and seeing the humanity and the spirituality behind every single person you know um so i i believe he you know he sees people as just all part you know brothers and sisters of the same human race and for some people that's a hard pill to swallow because you know hatred can really make you not want to ever engage with someone and block them out um, but I think it's sometimes it's good to kind of surrender to the anger that you have for your political adversaries and actually, you know, find the common denominator that makes us human beings and relate to each other in, in a deep way. And to me, that's that goes beyond politics. I mean, that's a whole philosophical thing. Yeah. And it's you see how much for the sake of our morale, we need somebody um, 
who really kind of raises the bar of discourse of how we treat each other. And again, as you're saying, this person going to CPAC, even if you don't vote for him, like we need to be paying attention to people like him who are who are acting in this way, who are setting such an example. Um, one thing I did want to kind of challenge, challenge you, challenge Dr. West on. Um, so, I mean, you know, Dr. West has been very much involved in the DSA for a long time. You see how a lot of the platform is inspired by like certain kind of socialist ideals. Um, I'm curious to understand, so, like Dr. West talks about, um, for example, he talks about people like Dorothy Day, who are very much involved in um, kind of uh, not just uplifting the poor, but living in communion with the poor. Um, and her critique, uh, like her political kind of angle, she went from being like an actual Marxist, a syndicalist, uh, technically speaking, but but to being very critical of the state in general, to the point of saying that like she didn't, she was no longer really interested in reforming the state, but like kind of, I don't know, like went in this very anarchist direction because she saw that like to rely too much on the state to, to um, create policies that benefit the poor or people who are underprivileged um, runs the risk of taking away the responsibility of actual community members from, you know, being involved with the needs of their neighbor, like actually taking an interest. So like if, you know, somebody who's underprivileged relies on the government for, for aid, then what incentive does your neighbor have to actually be interested in you and take care of you? Um, and it seems like for Dr. West, he's kind of doing this both and, like he seems to be very much interested in building local communities, building that kind of love among neighbors, but also in giving the government a very strong role in, um, again, like making certain benefits available to people in need. Um, can you, I don't know, like say a little bit about that balance. Like how does one balance, again, like encouraging actual neighbors to take the initiative to take care of each other while also allowing the state to play a, a significant role in, and again, making certain uh, benefits available to people? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think it does start with people having dignified jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, where we're at now, and you know, artificial intelligence is only going to exacerbate this problem, but we are kind of entering a state where there's just going to be massive unemployment. I know it doesn't seem like it now based on the numbers that the government puts out, but I think we are at the kind of onset of a major economic crisis. Um, and people are going to lose their jobs. And it's going to kind of take a reckoning for society to come together and say, well, obviously we don't trust the government, right? They're always trying to invade our bodily autonomy, right? Whether it be through reproductive justice or mandates on vaccines, the government does kind of play a role or they step too far in a role where they're having too much oversight on people's individual lives. I think we agree on that. Where it becomes tricky is, well, you know, people love social security, people love Medicaid, people love Medicare. These are the most popular programs. And really all that, you know, we say when we say we want Medicare for all is we just want the Medicare age lowered to zero. I mean, we're not trying to drastically, um, you know, uh, redesign um, the, you know, the society as we know it. I mean, that that's just a kind of like a simple fix that cuts out the middleman all these administrative people who are kind of sucking up billions of dollars in that industry, you cut that out. Um, and that money is money that we actually save. And so we actually would have a surplus under a healthcare system like that. We actually wouldn't be having to spend even more money and printing more money and creating more inflation. Um, 
but yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of manufacturing jobs, clerical jobs, truck driving jobs, and retail just dissipate. And a lot of those people uh, are going to lose their jobs. And at the end of the day, the only way people are actually going to be able to survive is with some form of a universal basic income. It's just the fact of the matter. Um, I mean, we can talk about the welfare system as it is today, but we have to understand that this shift because of AI is, it's just, it's, it's going to happen a lot sooner than people think. And, you know, in the sixties, Martin Luther King Jr. had a vision for this, you know, it wasn't necessarily Andrew Yang who coined the idea of, of a UBI. Um, and so that's something that, you know, Dr. West stands for. In fact, he received ballot access in Alaska from the Aurora Party's ballot line, uh, primarily due to the alignment with um, a universal basic income, which, you know, does have a lot of positive benefits on society. Um, but like I said before, it's going to basically be a necessity. Otherwise, people will starve and they will die. Um, not to get too grim, but that is the reality of the situation. So, you know, he does believe in dismantling the empire and, you know, eliminating all of the U.S.'s military bases around the world. And that in itself is a big, big way of decreasing government um, and making it less powerful. Um so the question is, like, are we are we giving more power to the government when we say we want healthcare as a human right? Or is it already kind of controlled by the government since you know the politicians are bought and paid for by the executives at these companies and therefore it's already a government-driven system, even though it's technically we're technically operating in a in a capitalist system, but really it's because it's rigged in that regard, it already is a form of socialism, but one that just benefits the ultra wealthy. And then it becomes like a rugged individualism for the poor. So, I mean, this is, this is a question that I myself have been grappling with for quite some time, which is like, we, you know, if the government's tyrannical, how do, how could we ever rely on the state for certain services? But as you can see, I mean, social security, Medicaid, Medicare, and veterans benefits are always the most popular thing. Um, and, you know, there's ways to keep it going uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, if we can pass the CARES Act and put trillions of dollars into the hands of just a few corporations, we can most certainly continue to fund Social Security. And I don't really think many people are complaining about it because unlike, you know, other government services like the DMV, uh, it, it works. So, you know, I think what we really need is some sort of public ownership of these services, um, having, you know, workers actually have a say on the board and giving, you know, some sort of um, ownership and stake in these big companies by the workers. And a lot of that's going to come through unionization, mm -hmm. um, but it also does require a president and administration to come in and say, we need more workers uh, actually having a say at the board. Um, and I think that way it does become a more democratized process so that it's not just, you know, a rogue uh, government doing things on its own, but us actually having oversight um, as as just the general public, you know, versus, uh, you know, whichever super PAC or lobbyist uh, has the most money to influence the halls of Congress. 
Yeah, I th and I think, again, what's interesting is that uh, Dr. West understands, again, the need for kind of robust uh, state-run programs, but also, again, not to not to let that compromise the need for individuals to really be invested in their own communities and, and to take initiative, because that's ultimately what, uh, that's only what fulfills people to be part of a loving community. And again, like, this is, this is a main one of love is one of the main words of the campaign. So again, whether our listeners vote for Dr. West or not, I mean, he's worth our attention. And um, again, we, we need this kind of morale boost. We need people who are going to raise the bar and, and kind of call us to aspire to treating each other in this, in this more dignified, more attractive way. You know, so Zedwin, thank you for coming on. Any, what would you like to plug before we wrap up? Well, definitely go to cornellwest2024.com where you can sign up to volunteer. Uh, I think that's going to be really important going forward since a lot of our ballot access initiatives are driven by the volunteers um, and there are deadlines quickly approaching. So we need as much help as we possibly can get. Uh, you'll also be able to view the events so that you can see when we're coming to a city near you so that if there is a rally, you know about it. Um, and, you know, if you have a few bucks, $5, $10 that you want to donate, I mean, it goes a long way. Uh, there's a lot of things on the campaign uh, that, you know, just are essential, like his when he travels, you know, sometimes he's going to need security, right? I mean, that's an important thing. Uh, rallies cost a lot of money to hold. It's kind of like a chicken and an egg situation where people want to see more rallies, but, you know, you don't have the funding for it, but, the, but you know, you you need the funding for the rallies, so... Uh, you know, these things, um, it's not like they're, it's not like, uh, you know, we're very cognizant and conscious uh, that the, of the fact that we have donors who are working class and are, you know, have low average contributions. So the money's not going to big consulting firms and getting wasted on lavish spending. We're very frugal about how we use our resources, but definitely sign up to volunteer because I think that's where the most amount of impact will happen. And, you know, just keep an eye out as we continue to roll out uh, the states that we're on the ballot on, whether it be through minor party ballot access or through us running as an independent, or maybe you even want to join if they're, if we're starting a justice for all party in your state, maybe you actually want to become an elector um, and have some influence on a party that will be, you know, post-election having influence in your state through mutual aid, through ballot access, and hey, maybe you even want to run for office yourself. Awesome. Well, Evan, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stephen.